Fem Radio. Fem Radio. Welcome to Round the Table, a fortnightly show for young people to discuss the big stories of the last couple of weeks. Each week, we're joined by Conservatives, Labour, the SNP, and a rotating fourth party. Here to tell us more about it is this week's presenter, David Shipaku Paku. Hello, and welcome to Round the Table with myself, David Shipaku Paku. Before we begin, we invited UKIP and the Labour Party to join us on this week's programme. However, no one was available to speak. This week on the show, Theresa May has headed to Northern Ireland in order to try and solve the deadlock between the DUP and Sinn Féin at the Northern Irish Assembly. But why is this issue being ignored for so long? And can an agreement realistically occur while the DUP are in a deal with the Conservatives at Westminster? We asked this and more from our panel. Anna Subri has said that she isn't sorry for calling Theresa May to sling out Brexit MPs from the Conservative Party. Subri is one of many MPs in the Conservatives trying to steer the party away from a hard Brexit. Are the Conservatives falling apart, or have we blown this right out of proportion? Following on from 100 years of the Representation of People Act of 1918, we discuss a variety of issues, including Margaret Thatcher and Mary Barber statues and online abuse towards female MPs. Where do we draw the line between cultural impact and historical impact? And does Thatcher really deserve a statue? And it's Valentine's Day, which of course means only one thing. A beautiful steak bake for two? Well, at least that's what Greg's think we want from Valentine's Day, as they launch their Meals for Two right across the country. We ask our panel, is Valentine's Day becoming too commercialised? That's all from this week on Round the Table. So welcome to this week's Round the Table, and joining me this week are... Erin from the SNP. And... Uh, Thaddeus, I'm from the Scottish Conservatives. Welcome to Round the Table. Um, we're going to kick things off with uh, Theresa May heading to Northern Ireland in hopes of a new power-sharing agreement. So Northern Ireland hasn't had a devolved government since January 2017 when Martin McGuinness resigned and pulled Sinn Féin out of the coalition with the DUP following uh, the Green Energy Scheme scandal. Civil servants have been running the country and it's been difficult for any new legislation to get through. Uh, Theresa May struck a deal with the DUP after the general election in 2017, but she's faced criticism for a mainly hands-off approach to the deadlock at Stormont. And several talks have occurred in the past year to try and solve the deadlock between the DUP and Sinn Féin, with issues dividing the parties, including Sinn Féin's demand for an Irish Language Act and marriage equality, and now Theresa May and Leo Varadkar, uh, the Irish Prime Minister, um, have headed to Stormont to discuss where Northern Ireland goes next and to try and end the deadlock in the talks. So I want to ask you guys, why has this issue been ignored for so long? Because it's not been talked about as much as I think, and I think many people think it should have been. Erin, what, what do you think? Um, I definitely think it hasn't been talked about enough. Um, um, I worry about what's going to happen. I mean, the, the, it's been, with Brexit, I think it's... Um, uh, quite dangerous waters and um, there's been some very um, important um, announcements and conversation over border um, so I think it's really important that there's um, a Northern Irish Assembly um, so that the people's views are made um, are made in, and there can be conversation with Vardkar and the Northern Irish Assembly but that's not been able to take place and I think that's a big issue um, I'm not sure how far Vardkar and May will will get um as it's been it's not been very progressive the talks we've had so far but um after jerry adams standing down and um martin mcginnis resigning Mar- yeah. Uh, yeah martin yeah. mcginnis um i think it'll be interesting to see what's happening mm-hmm. Thaddeus? 
Uh, I didn't think I'd start this talk by agreeing with the SNP, but I, I do agree with you. I think it's obviously very important that Northern Ireland has its elected assembly and government um, generally, and also because of the Brexit issue, Northern Ireland is obviously a huge, huge issue there. Um, I I do think Theresa May can be a bit can be criticised a bit too much on this issue. I mean, you just said that she's been criticised for being a bit too hands off. I mean, if she gets too involved, then she's criticised of you know breaking the Good Friday Agreement and trying to um, interfere too much in Northern Irish affairs. She's been fairly consistent in saying Northern Ireland needs to have an elected government. That is the best possible way of going forward. And she has tried to facilitate those talks between the DUP and Sinn Féin. It does seem to be progressing towards a resolution in the last week. Obviously, Theresa May and Leo Varadkar were up there on Monday. And yet again, the DUP let Theresa May down. Um, but today they were they were talking up the possibility of an agreement there seems to be some sort of legal fudge over the uh, the language Irish language bill where it turns out that the, the DUP will stop Sinn Féin getting their Irish language bill but at the same time at some point in the future they'll, they'll work out some sort of legislative uh, machinery by which the same effect the same thing can come into effect and that does seem to be the way forward in resolving issues in Northern Irish politics um, considering there are such such a huge divide between the two communities so it's looking positive i think to be fair to theresa may there's been a lot going on since the last general election since she um, became prime minister again erin do you think that some people are being too critical of, of how she's handled this situation um to be honest i haven't actually heard a lot of criticism towards theresa may i actually haven't heard a lot about the situation and i feel like it hasn't had fair news coverage and i feel like um that um there could be criticism where um, Theresa May may be backing up the DUP because she's in coalition with them and um, Sinn Féin might be hostile because of that. Um, I feel like there is a lot going on for Theresa May, obviously, with Brexit. Um, so it's probably very difficult <laughs> and probably a little overwhelming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> following, on from, um, following on from what Erin was saying, Thaddeus, do you think that a reasonable agreement between Sinn Féin and the DUP can occur whilst the DUP are in some sort of coalition with the Conservative government? Well, the DUP are not in coalition with the Conservative government. But they're backing them up for, for votes. Yeah, I know, but that, informal. It's, an, it's an informal agreement. It's not a coalition. You've mm -hmm. got to be careful because coalition has other ramifications. Mm -hmm. I, I do think it's, it's certainly possible. The Tories have always been quite clear that they will keep that they will use the DUP for votes and listen to them in the House of Commons, but keep an arm's length from them in Northern Ireland, as the Good Friday Agreement requires legally. Um, and as I said, the, the two parties, Sinn Féin and the DUP, seem to be progressing towards an agreement over the, over the last week. And so I do, think it's, I do think it's possible. Why do you think Northern Ireland hasn't had th this issue about the Northern Irish Assembly hasn't had fair news coverage? I'm not sure why. Um, I feel like uh, the main news outlets um in scotland focus on either scottish issues or issues happening at westminster and um i'd like to hear more about things happening in wales and northern ireland because they're also part of the uk and as a scotland still part of the uk i still want to hear what's happening in the rest of the uk i also feel like um it's quite a contentious issue when it comes to talking about a united Ireland and news probably don't want to get too bogged down in that because um, it's a situation where 
there's so much instability when it comes to you know the border conversation or a conversation over united ireland or even talking about um between Sinn Féin and the, the DUP so I think it's something they probably don't want to get bogged down in. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main sticking points surrounding this deadlock has been uh, an Irish Language Act and today Arlene Foster and the DUP have said no to a freestanding Irish Language Act. Sinn Féin have said an act is necessary before moving forward. Do we think that Northern Ireland should have a freestanding Irish Language Act? I think um, the DUP should be more open to discussion and compromise because that's what they'll have to do in um, government, as in, in Northern Irish, Irish Assembly. If they want to reach an agreement, they need to be able to compromise. I, I agree. I think both sides should be open to compromise. I think Northern Ireland is, su- is a culture of such complexity and history that as outsiders, it's hard for us necessarily to say, it should have a particular language act or it should not. I mean, certainly unionist communities would feel threatened by that. They would feel their their English language or their their own sort of version of Northern Irish Scots language could be threatened by that. And so I think there would need to be protection protection for those as well, which I don't know whether the Sinn Féin is considering. So, but as I say, it's hard for me as an outsider to be able to dictate those to Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. Do you think that language is essential for celebrating culture and celebrating who we are as a nation? Um, It's certainly part of your identity. I mean, if you are, um, if you're Welsh, for example, the Welsh language and the Welsh culture is is incredibly important to your your identity. It's obviously much less important in England, uh, where there is no minority language. It seems to be an issue in Scotland, but not not nearly so much. but again, in Northern Ireland, it's different. It's driven by incredibly complex and long-standing cultural and religious and historical, um, you know, dividing lines. And it's just another battlefield in that in that long-standing conflict. Erin, um, I'd agree. I'd say it depends on you really, and and the history of um, the language and how it's been dealt with, um, where where I'm from a lot of people I don't speak Scots um, and the people speaking Gaelic in the whole of Scotland is decreasing Um, there's been initiatives to increase that so I feel like um, it's very different in Scotland compared to Northern Ireland Um, so I can't really relate and I don't know how people in Northern Ireland feel maybe I'll have to talk to them (laughs) I would say that I generally worry, and that's not just in the UK, it's around the world, when nationalist leaders try to use language and culture as a means of dividing people. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's never a good thing. Uh, so we're going to move on to the story of Anna Soubry, uh, the fact that she isn't sorry for calling Theresa May to sling out Brexit-supporting MPs. So Anna Soubry is a Conservative MP, and she's one of many MPs in the Conservative Party who are trying to steer the party and the country away from a hard Brexit. Uh, she, says, she says that the government hasn't worked out 19 months on what the end game is, and we need to know. Uh, She says that she's fed up with language and vitriol surrounding the referendum, and in her words, one of the great myths of the referendum was that the country voted to leave the single market and the customs union. She also warned in an interview with BBC's Newsnight that Theresa May faced the same fate as John Major and David Cameron if she refused to stand up to the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, as well as a threat to quit the party and form a new political alliance. Thaddeus, are the Conservatives falling apart? 
I was waiting till you, for you to ask, ask me that question. <laughs> First of all, I should say that Anna Subri is a very, very good constituency MP, and what she's doing at the moment is standing up for her constituents and what she thinks is best for the party. So, you know, I, full marks to her for that. Mm. The Conservatives are not falling apart. This is obviously healthy debate between within the party. Uh, the MPs seem broadly behind Theresa May as Prime Minister, at least for the time being, and there seems to be a consensus that the Cabinet will come to an agreement over our eventual uh, departure destination from the European Union and and the and constituents and the MPs will, will support them in that. So the, the Tories are not falling apart at all. Erin? Um, I imagine she's feeling very frustrated and angry, um, which we've seen um, through speaking to different news outlets and um, the way she's voted in the chamber. Um, I would agree and say the Conservatives are not falling apart, um, not nearly as much as Labour are. Um, however, I think she, Anna Subri just really wants to put pressure on, on Theresa May because she feels very passionately about remaining in the EU. But since the UK voted to leave, she just really wants to stay in the single market mm. and she's not being listened to, I gather. So she's being very passionate in her views. <laughs> there seems to be a lot of the same kind of anger and conversation and threats being made across the house is there a way that we can avoid these threats of quitting and you know dissension how can they be avoided i mean they're not just threats we saw um justine greening is it justine greening she she didn't take the offered cabinet position yeah, but she's she still on the tory down. backbenches well she stepped down for cabinet from cabinet because she didn't like the way the government was going so i mean it's not just threats but it can be argued that justine greening didn't want to take a different job and she was quite happy with what she was doing yeah she didn't want to be working pension secretary after she was sacked for being education secretary it's not it's, it wasn't ste- resigning from the government on a point of brexit principle i think that's overstating the, the no issue. but she didn't like the way the government was going what I read, um, but I feel that um, although there have been threats made, it's a way for MPs to get what they want or scare the party leadership because I feel like a lot of backbench MPs and all parties can feel like they're lacking control and they're lacking power, um, so sometimes they do use threats to get what they want. But does Theresa May have control over the party and have control over people like jo- uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson? Well, obviously she has less control than she did before before the general election last year and she has considerably less control than she would have done had she actually won the majority she thought she would. But as I said before, I, I think there is a general consensus among the backbenchers that they will they will follow the Prime Minister. Obviously Jacob Rees-Mogg and Anna Subri on the other side seem to feel that they can speak out on Brexit issues, no other issues but Brexit issues. And, and be heard by the media. But, you know, if you, if you look at the actual votes, the, talk, the government has lost one vote on Brexit since, since triggering Article 50. So it, it's hardly a major backbench rebellion that Theresa May is struggling to put down. She does still pretty much have control. But these people are very vocal in what they say, and they, you know, enthuse people on both sides of the argument. Anna Subri has become a very big figure for people who want to remain. Jacob Rees-Mogg is, is a very... Um, has become almost a, a saint for uh, a hard Brexit. What do you do? You really think that people are enthused by Theresa May in the direction that she's going in, or are they f- favouring more of these different types of figures? I don't think 
anyone is enthused by Theresa May. I think people understand that she's doing a very, very good, very difficult job. And I think people understand that she is slowly getting there. This idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg is a saint and Anna Subri is a major figure for people who voted Remain, I think these these personalities can be hyped up a bit too much by the media and the Twitter uh, mob. Uh, the ordinary man in the street or woman in the street, I wonder whether they know or care much about Anna Subri or Jacob Rees-Mogg, other than sort of vaguely interesting personalities that occasionally make it onto the news. People seem to just want Brexit to go ahead, and that's what the Tory party under Theresa May is trying to deliver. Do you think we've become too vitriolic in the language that we're using around Brexit and the you know the attitudes that we have towards Remain and Leave and, and you know all these different these different parts of Brexit? Erin, what do you think? I think um, that a the way the Brexit campaign was run was was run on um, inappropriate language used towards um, particularly immigrants, um, not from the necessarily conservatives, more from U- UKIP and um, people, ordinary people in the street. Um, I feel like a lot of people feel very passionate about their position, and it can lead to contention and a little bit of um, awkwardness between people. However, um, everyone has a right to say um, how they feel about Brexit and I feel like healthy debate is very important um, and definitely holding the government to account and scrutinising the government on everything they're doing is very important as well. But do you think that that scrutinising can sometimes lead to, you know, poor language being used and, you know, attitudes with a, you know, really poor attitudes when it comes to rather than being polite and scrutinising it comes to you know like Thaddeus was saying people on Twitter and social media being really vitriolic I think um, there are a lot of people usually anonymous people on Twitter um, who just say very horrible things um, to people on all sides of the debate um, and um, I've, we've talked about it before and it's really it's, it's a big issue but it's very difficult to police, and um, I think it's important that um, that um, people are protected. You know, MPs are safe, um, but it's difficult to stop people. You know, people creating anonymous anonymous profiles and um, hurling abuse at MPs. We'll be coming onto that a little bit later on. Um, I want to ask, what does what do different parties want out of Brexit? Because it seems that there's a lot of kind of questions and ideas. So I want to ask you guys from your perspective of, you know, representing parties and enjoying politics, what does what do you guys want out of Brexit? Sorry, are you asking us personally or as representatives of our of our party? Let's go for both. Well, I think probably we we both want the same thing out of Brexit. We want a Brexit that delivers, you know, control the you know the, the moving of democratic control to to the uk from brussels over certain issues like fishing and immigration and, and various environmental re- regulation areas um and we want a brexit that ensures as frictionless trade as possible between europe and at the same time one that you know that makes us more able to trade freely with the rest of the world that's pr- probably what we both want whether whether we get there is, an, is another issue is another question um, I'd like to remain in the single market. I'd like um, programmes like Erasmus to still be going. Um, the Scottish Government has already made pledges to make sure that EU students um, can study for free at our universities. And I would like that returned. Um, I'd also like for... Um, 
again, you know, frictionless trade, that's vitally important. Um, I'd also like to see, you know, huge companies who have threatened to um, leave or cut jobs um, to not, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, to remain in London and remain in Edinburgh and in the UK. Um, and I'd like to see the smallest amount of impact on jobs and um, the economy and not a recession. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that'd be ideal. I want to pick up on another thing that Anna Subri said, that Theresa May faced the same fate as John Major and David Cameron. Do we think that she's heading in that direction, or do you think that she's going to be a bit more successful than her previous um, her, her predecessors? I, I think it's it's unlikely that Theresa May will have a successful end to being a prime to being prime minister. I think it's 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 pretty much decided that the Tories will get rid of her when when Brexit is is finished and she she will go down as another Tory leader who was who fell ultimately because of the European issue. I think it's 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 part of being a Tory leader really. So what do you as a conservative representative want out of a prime minister that you're not getting from Theresa May? I think Theresa May is an excellent prime minister. But you just said that you know, she might go down in the same the same books as John Major and David Cameron. Uh, yes, because she'll she'll ultimately lose her job because of the European issue. That doesn't mean I don't think she's a good prime minister. Right. I want a prime minister who is ultimately able to deal with all of the incredibly difficult and often quite boring. I think that's an issue as well. Uh, bits of minutiae, the problems that will come out of leaving the European bureaucracy. Who is able to uh, actually understand those issues rather than say. A, a, other politicians who are able to say, you know, very grand terms like things like, you know, we want to stay in the single market, not actually understanding what that means, how we deal with that while being outside of the European voting structure and political structure. I want someone, a prime minister like Theresa May is, who's capable of understanding those problems. Also, I'd like her to present her issues a bit better, her solutions a bit better as well. Erin, you mentioned that you wanted to remain part of the UK to remain part of the single market. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's possible given how divisive it is, particularly with the, the free movement of people? Um, I do. I believe that um, Anna Subri picked up on the point of people voting to leave the EU but not leaving the single market. Um, and I know particularly for Scotland that we voted to remain in the EU and now it's unlikely to happen. I think remaining in the single market is our best bet and all those powers being devolved, you know, agriculture being devolved to Scotland um, like they should be. Um, because I think it's really vital for trade, for relations and for um, free movement of people, which Scotland on hold didn't vote against. But the free movement of people, that one of the particular things that people picked up on at the, during the EU referendum was that a lot of people vote, may have voted to leave the EU because of immigration. So how can we have the free movement of people when a variety of people you know, across the country do not want to have as many people coming into the country as we currently do? Well, I don't have any experience um, with people who don't believe there should be, should be a free movement free movement of people because I generally socialise with a lot of people who remain uh, who want to remain um, and I think a lot of the reasons why people voted against Brexit is speculation because the Brexit campaign was so m- mixed up and no one really knew what was going on, people could be voting um, a lot of people voted against um, voted um, Brexit because um, of uh, the common fisheries policy um, a lot of people voted um, Brexit because they wanted to change. So I think it's, we just really don't know why people voted Brexit, really. I mean, you could poll it, but that's not concrete. Um, I think the government just has to do what they feel is best and um, what's going to be most beneficial to people of Scotland. 
and the UK. Can I can I say something yeah. on that? I, I I agree with Anna Subri to a certain extent. I don't think the average man on the street voted specifically to leave the single market or the customs union or the fisheries policy, for example. But they did vote for things like you say immigration, for making your own trade deals and for controlling your own fishing waters. They did specifically vote for those issues. And us leaving those programmes like the single market, the customs union, would allow the United Kingdom to to deal with immigration and making your own trade deals as well. So it, it, people voted on the issue and leaving these European superstructures will allow us to deal with those issues while at the same time getting rid of the democratic deficit which would exist if we were in the single market but outside the European Union because then we'd have to do what Brussels told us with no say in how those rules were, were formulated at all. I want to ask before we move on, we have got 13 months before we officially leave the EU in March 2019. Is this whole thing going to be sorted by March, or have we got a very long wait to go before before we continue? Well, there's obviously going to be an implementation period after the leave date, in which they'll, for about two years, not I think it is. Not necessarily. What do you mean, not necessarily? Um, the chief negoti- negotiator of the EU did say that it's not guaranteed, and well, that that will have to be um, concrete. That's not concrete. I think you you have to understand that Michel Barnier is also playing to his own audience. He wants to be president of the European Commission, so he's going to say particularly difficult things, which people in the European Commission like. But no one in the actual European governments wants to see Britain crash out of the European Union. They want it as little as we do. So there almost certainly will be an implementation period of about two years, during which a lot of the T's can be crossed and the I's can be dotted. I personally think that they'll be talking well beyond that as well, dealing with the, all the smaller issues that this will be going on for, for decades, I think. Uh, so we're going to move on to uh, statues and suffragettes. So Margaret Thatcher, there was plans for a Margaret Thatcher statue to be erected in Westminster, but those plans have been recently scrapped. Uh, and Mary Barber, the social activist who um, fought for the rights of the working class and fighting for peace, fought for peace in the First World War. Um, she, a statue of her is going to be erected in Glasgow. And this comes after 100 years of some women getting the vote uh, in the last couple of weeks. Amnesty International have released figures recently which show that black and ethnic minority female MPs receive 224 abusive uh, tweets per MP versus white female MPs who receive 92 abusive tweets per MP. I want to ask, we're discussing a, quite a, a, a range of issues, but the, the main Fake the main point that we're, we're, we're going after is 100 years of some women getting the vote. Um, I want to ask, where do we think that we draw the line between cultural impact and historical impact on our country? You know, Margaret Thatcher has had historical impact as well as cultural impact in our, you know, in our society. Um, Mary, it could be argued that Mary Barber has had the, the same sort of impact. So where do we draw the line between these, these, two, these two ideas? I want to ask, um, following on from those statistics from Amnesty International, do we think that our country is still naturally aggressive towards female MPs? Yes. I think some of us are, but there's been huge progress in the last few years, which makes it better, but there's still a lot more to do. Mm-hmm. There's been progress um, ever since um, women first got the vote. Um, well, some women first got the vote. Um, however, there's still a huge way to go. I mean... In not just in politics, in every job sector, um, and I feel like um, what's been highlighted by a lot of studies um, done to particularly online abuse towards female MPs is they're so disproportionately affected. Um, so um, 
BME um, MPs, female MPs are most likely to be targeted. You know, Diane Abbott received um, almost half of all abusive um, tweets sent to MPs something like eight weeks before the snap general election. Um, and then uh, MPs, female MPs who are gay are much more likely to be um, targeted than straight um, female MPs. So I feel like we've come a long way, but not nearly as far as we should be. I want to ask, when it comes to these two statues, Mary Barber and Margaret Thatcher, do you, do you think that both of them deserve recognition in our society? Do you think something like a statue is 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 worthy of Margaret Thatcher and, and Mary Barber? Well, I think they both deserve recognition. Obviously, everyone has heard as much. Everyone has heard of Margaret Thatcher. Far fewer people have heard of Mary Barber. But I think both, in their own ways, do do deserve recognition. I I I get annoyed with lots of left wing people who critic who vote against Margaret Thatcher statues, vote, vote against Margaret Thatcher commemoration. I un- obviously understand that she was incredibly divisive and she probably could have been di- more diplomatic in what she did. But at the same time, she, you know, she was one of our longest serving prime ministers. She did preside over an, a, a, a period of enormous economic growth and renewal in our country. She does deserve some recognition. Also, I was reading about Mary Barber earlier, uh, you know, notwithstanding her pacifist ideas, which I don't necessarily agree with, but the work she did with the working class in, in Glasgow getting... Uh, more recognition for for people struggling with their rents, particularly families whose soldiers were fighting at the front. I think it's enormously impressive, and there should be more education about women like her in our society, in our culture, which would hopefully then feed into people then tr- treating contemporary women with more respect on Twitter and in real life. I and mean, what do you think about the idea of a statue of someone like Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> <laughs> brief silence there. Mm-hmm. Um, Thatcher should not be celebrated for what she did for women and that's what I fundamentally believe Um, and definitely not what she did for the working class particularly in Scotland. Um, I'm personally against a statue of Thatcher um, because I fundamentally believe that the period over which she was um, Prime Minister was just fundamentally regressive um, in social impact maybe not economic impact but that's not something I would put a statue up for I think when there are so few statues of women I mean I read this today there are more statues of dogs in Edinburgh than there are statues of women <laughs> yeah. and the statues of women are both Queen Victoria mm-hmm. um, you know when the UK has so few statues of women to then turn your nose up at Margaret Thatcher because of her s- slight divisiveness I think is, is cutting off your nose to spite your face really I feel, do you not think that a lot of people will argue against having a statue of Margaret Thatcher? For example, things like Section 28, things like the way that minors were treated and the working class were treated. Do you not think that things like that, when we get into modern society, that we should be celebrating things like LGBT plus equality and marriage equality and the rights of people in the working class? Do you not think that it kind of goes against what we're seeing? in our society. Obviously, I think that Margaret Thatcher, some of Margaret Thatcher's policies that you mentioned would not be popular today, but remember that they were popular then. She won three general elections for a reason. Um, and putting up a statue to her, which I, th- which I think we should do, and I think ultimately we will do, is not just celebrating her Section 28 Act. It's also celebrating her fundamental economic 
renewal in this country. If you think where this country was before Margaret Thatcher, when the dead weren't buried, where rubbish piled up on the streets for months on end, when there were constant strikes, Margaret Thatcher did end that. And she did allow a whole generation of working class people like my grandparents to buy their own house for the first time. You know, and she she was the first woman prime minister who let people let young girls like my sister aspire to be, you know, MPs and prime minister. I think there's enormous thing, enormous amount to celebrate in Margaret Thatcher, as well as to realise that we have moved on. I'd like to go back to what you said before about there not being enough um, statues of women. There's not, but it doesn't mean that we need to put up a statue of Margaret Thatcher. But why not? Because she was the first female prime minister. Like Thaddeus was saying, she's inspired a lot of, of young women to go into politics. Do you not think that having someone like her represents a lot of positives as well? as you know the things that maybe aren't so negative because we've got people like queen victoria up who you know supported colonialism mm-hmm. you know there are lots of different women who are made statues of that we don't have you know the same ideas now do you not think that having someone like her up celebrates young women to go on to into politics no i don't think women young women my age will look at margaret thatcher and say oh i want to be an mp i think it's important that women are in power, but it's important that women in power empower other women by doing good things for women, which she didn't necessarily do, particularly women in the working class. And I think now saying we'll celebrate Thatcher for being the first female prime minister, I mean, that's great. She was the first female prime minister, but that doesn't mean that she'd have, she should have a statue and empower other women because she didn't do that through her policies and she didn't do that, particularly for, you know, section... 28 and and I think a lot of her policies as you're saying wouldn't be acceptable now so we shouldn't celebrate them now is the is the issue that it's too soon no I think it should be never (laughs) no but I I I think we're obviously coming at this from two completely different Mm -hmm. directions but you're saying we shouldn't celebrate her for things she didn't do which is fine we shouldn't celebrate her for things she didn't do like support promote more women in in parliament which by the way (laughs) Theresa May does an awful lot of but we should celebrate and commemorate her for the enormous work she did in our economy, uh, you know, in our standing in the world, you know, hugely important things that affected all of our lives. She should be commemorated for. But I think it's when you come up against um, the moral, I think it's very a moral argument where you say this person did good things, but they also did bad things. So or they didn't do something which would Im- positively impact other people's lives. Where do you draw the line? And I personally believe Margaret Thatcher was more bad than good. So we shouldn't commemorate her. And particularly in places like um, Glasgow, putting <laughs> a, a statue of Margaret Thatcher wouldn't bode well. They'd probably be vandalised. Probably, but that would be a crime and you know should be punished by the law. Mm. Um, and anyway, it was, it was in Parliament Square, wasn't it? It was not, not in Glasgow. Somewhere like Westminster, where yeah. she made impact, particularly in her politics, do you not think that, that would be more you know reasonable to have some, her somewhere, like, somewhere there? I think there should be... A statue of Winnie Ewing. But she had far less impact than Margaret Thatcher. Well, far less positive impact. No, not for not for a lot of Scots and or or the first ever female MP. Well, they they are putting up a statue to Millicent Forsyth instead, who is a leading suffragist Mm -hmm. instead of Margaret Thatcher. So that that is happening as well. Yeah. Would something like having a, the statue of a former Prime Minister being erected, would that be suitable outside of Westminster in any case? Her constituency in Finchley, her hometown in, in, in Grantham in Lincolnshire. I mean, I'm sure you could think of 
lots of places where it would be suitable. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not in the coal mining districts of Yorkshire or other parts of Wales, for mm-hmm. example. I want to move on to uh, online, back onto on- online abuse. Um, Katie Price recently went to Parliament to argue for making online trolling a criminal event, and now the Justice Secretary, David Gork, has said ministers are looking into tougher penalties for social media abuse. We were discussing the fact that black and uh, minority ethnic female MPs receive 224 abusive tweets per MP. Do you think things like you know, having something in law would crack down on abuse on social media? Um, I think it would obviously have an effect, but the internet is incredibly hard to police, as we're seeing at the moment, and the internet companies are not particularly helpful when it comes to policing them. Facebook and Twitter don't like cooperating with the authorities, so I don't think it would solve the whole issue, but it might have a small effect. Erin? I agree. I feel like it's just such a difficult um, issue to police and um, to set measures in place. Um, I agree with the sentiment. Um, I just think it's very difficult because I feel like we're very new well, we're obviously very new in you know the whole internet and social media and um before you know things like facebook and twitter were were set up it wasn't really thought through the way that it would be policed the way the huge impact that it would have on people and the huge impact that cyberbullying has on people so um i think we're currently in a stage where a lot of people are trying to do a lot of things to mitigate the effects and the negative effects of um, cyberbullying and and abuse hurled towards the people, but we're not quite there and it's so difficult to find a solution. We're going to move on to our final story, um, which is about Greg's and their wonderful romantic meal for two that they're holding in their stores. So Greg's have decided to have uh, a lovely romantic meal for two if, uh, for Valentine's Day and uh, they are have the, they put bookings out on open table and some of these sold out in 20 minutes and they were rolled out right across the country. Would you go on a Valentine's date t- to Greg's? If someone said to you, would you like to come to Greg's with me for Valentine's Day, would you Would you go, guys? I think it would probably be a last date. Right. I'd say no. <laughs> Do you think Valentine's Day is, is becoming too commercialised and it's, it's too soon after Christmas for it to be worth of, worthy of something? I think there shouldn't be a set day when you should just love someone. If you love someone, you should just be nice to each other all the time. I think it's a wee bit, it's got to the point where it's very, very cheesy. You know, you go into the shops and it's all, we love hearts and flowers. And my family are so over it. They're like, I don't care. Thaddeus? <laughs> it's just another excuse for shops to sell us bits of, you know, stuff. Like, it, it's not a real holiday or festival at all. So I, I try not to engage with it. Yeah. Do you think that we care as a nation about valentine's day anymore did we ever it could be argued that we have that we've we've talked we've you know it's here it exists and you know people make plenty of money out of it i think young people who i think it it's celebrated by some people but not making a huge amount you know people will buy cards for each other but it's not a big holiday I mean, you see all over social media really cheesy stuff of like people buying cars for each other, but I don't really think that's that really comes to fruition in real life. I hope because I feel like we need to focus more on, like many other holidays, just focusing on being nice to each other all the time and not having to set a date for it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's just, as I said, it's just an excuse for card shops and present shops to sell us more stuff. It's a, it's a commercial invention. I have no time for it. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us this week, guys, on Round the Table. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Round the Table was created by David Chipakupaku. This episode was written by Rory Barraclough, Donna Kavanagh, Maya Chillingworth, and David Chipakupaku. The show was presented by David Chipakupaku and produced by Rory Barraclough. That's all for this week on Round the Table. If you want to hear more of our episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash round-the-table or find us on iTunes. And whilst you're there, why not subscribe and leave us a little review. Thanks for tuning in this week and we'll see you in a fortnight. Boom Radio. Boom Radio. Boom Radio.